As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Katie Kaminsky joins us now, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex. Katie, what a call at the start of the year. This short that you've held on bonds is paying off in a big way over the last month. You've put out a headline and you knew it would get attention. You've raised the prospect to going to six. So let's breathe some life into that conversation. What is it that you saw at the start of the year that's continuing now and you think these forces are here to stay? Yeah, so we've seen short signals and fixed income all year albeit not as strong as last year. But what's really interesting about this, particularly recently, is we've started to see the market agree with us. And we've also seen some of the fundamental players out there say, this might have to happen. Higher rates for longer. So, Katie, is it time to back away, considering at the start of the year it was contrarian? Why is it a move you want to stick with? Well, this is a really good question because I've been asking myself this as well, is that if we've looked at the data with technical signals, when the curve is still inverted, trend signals short tend to work really well. As we see a flatter curve, it becomes more mixed. And if we can see a steeper curve, I plan that we're probably going to be long. So we're still within that transition period where we could have a very interesting trend environment as we see the curve flatten out and everyone realize why hold long-term debt when you can have such a good return short-term and if the data isn't clear that we're going to cut rates quickly. Um, It's a sticky inflation play. It's a question about long-term cash flows and I think people are starting to really realize this is this is the real issue. Katie, every single day we ask people, why now? The bond sell-off is something people were talking about for quite a while. Suddenly, it seems to be reasserting itself. Do you have an answer to the now of the sell-off? Yes, I really think it has to do with behavior. And I think that everyone would rather wait to see if something is going to come to fruition. And that's exactly what you're seeing this week. Everyone's sitting around waiting to hear commentary. They're pretty sure they know what it's going to be. And I think the real truth is that we're starting to see the data is pretty consistent with the narrative that this is going to take some time and that higher rates could be part of what is the new normal in a world where we've experienced so much inflation and sort of a very different post-pandemic economy. And I think that's where it's starting to turn around and I'm starting to see fundamental investors agree with the technical signals. How important is it that stocks have been able to rally in the face of higher yields? Does this sort of edify the idea that this is sustainable and something people can lean into that yields are going to stay this high and the whole world isn't going to collapse as a result? 
Yeah, that's a tricky one because I think the backdrop of yesterday, so yesterday definitely brought that to light. You saw an environment where stocks were up, the NASDAQ was up a ton and yields were up to 16-year highs. Um, That's a weird situation for markets. I think if it's actually the case that those two things coincide, it means the market's accepting higher rates, which could be a good thing. On the other hand, I'd be a little skeptical of how big of a move we've had this month. We could have just had a little bit of relief rally yesterday. So I think we need to watch that correlation trade a little bit more closely going forward and see if this positive correlation environment is actually um, going to stick. Kaylee, we can see the rates on the screen. I just wonder how many people are paying them. Kaylee, we haven't had the great refinancing yet. Some people maybe think it begins next year in high yield. Katie, do you think this economy can tolerate these kind of rates beyond, say, six to nine months? This is the really tough question. And I think that's what March showed us, is that suddenly it seems like people wake up and they say, wait a minute, there's a good deal for yield here, or this isn't working. And I think it's very hard to predict when people are actually going to refinance and when those particular events are either going to change their behavior. Um, The truth is people behave differently and they in a higher rate environment. We've seen that shift in short-term rates. We haven't seen it in high yield. We haven't seen it in long-term debt yet. This week was interesting to me because it said people might be starting to wake up. You're starting to see headlines about selling treasuries. You guys were just asking about that. Could it be the time? Maybe this fall. Katie, just one more question. The 6%, the number six, that gets a lot of attention. Is that actually a call from you? Is that a forecast? No, we don't forecast, but we do see trends in data. And if you look over longer term horizons, 6% isn't a crazy number for a 10 year. I know it is for those of us that have been living in you know, a decade of really low interest rates. But those of us who look at the technical signals and long term historical patterns, what you see is that that's not a, you know, a restrictive rate for many periods in economic history. So it's not strange to think that we might have higher rates if we have some prizes on the upside and inflation in the fall. Katie, great call to start the year. Just fantastic and great to catch up with you late into August. Katie Kaminsky there of Alpha Simplex on this bond market. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Weighing in on how this economy has been strong, but will deteriorate in the face of some of these yields, chief economist and macro strategist Dreyfus and Mellon. I want to just start there, Vincent. Are these yields sustainable where they are right now? Uh, yeah, they sound easier to explain than when they were sub 2% a few years ago. Uh, inflation is going to settle down at 2%. Uh, the term premium or the, the the risk premium that people, investors are going to pay are going to turn positive instead of negative. And the equilibrium real rate or the natural rate of interest is probably higher given how robust economic activity is. So yeah, it's sustainable. It's particularly sustainable because a key message of Chair Powell at Jackson Hole is going to be in, uh, the policy rate is going to rest on a high plateau for a while. That's going to feed into longer term yields. We've been talking all morning about long and variable lags and whether they're very long and very variable or whether they're very short. We've already seen the worst of it. And now the market is adapting and adjusting, to use the phrase frequently used on this show. Which is it? So it depends on sector. And that is the question for Jackson Hole, by the way. It's about shifts in the economy. From a monetary policy maker, it comes down to the question, what's the transmission of monetary policy? How long are the lags? Answer is sector by sector. That uh, The lagged effect of monetary policy is local, not, not national. Uh, we you already went through one segment of the economy where it's shorter, real estate. Uh, home buyers depend critically on mortgage rates. Builders depend critically on, on marketable rates. Uh, so that has borne the brunt of the remarkable Fed tightening a lot uh, sooner than any other areas. Other parts of the economy have a cushion between uh, aggregate demand and uh, uh, monetary policy. Households still have a lot of retained saving from the fiscal largesse they got in 2020 and 2021. They're working it down. As that buffer gets smaller and smaller, you'll see the interest rate effect bite more. Let's develop on that a little bit more, especially as we get earnings from Macy's and Lowe's and exporting goods this morning, showing a kind of motley picture of where the consumer is and how much savings they have left. What's your sense of the fact that everyone's been saying the savings are running out, the savings are running out, now they're going to be running out, and they still haven't? Does that make you think that they're not going to run out or that people just were uh, perhaps a little premature in how quickly they thought they would dry up? So it probably tells us we didn't appreciate how big the uh, say, uh, cash load was at the beginning. That is, households saved a lot more of what they got from the government than we expected uh, and continued to save uh, uh, for, for a while to come. You know, if you just look at a typical saving rate, uh, relative to what households actually were doing, they must have worked down at least a half the cash load, but that's still half. And by the way, 
We should also remember that states and localities also got fiscal transfers and they have a cash cash pile uh, on the sideline as well. And those state governments and localities in particular are the ones that are really very cyclically sensitive. So essentially what the federal government did was lengthen the lags of monetary policy by immunizing, by insulating uh, some of the interest-sensitive parts of of our economy uh, to the Fed policy instrument. This is important, and it really speaks to what could happen if the Fed keeps rates where they are, even if they don't raise them again, but keeps them where they are through the remainder of this year and all of next year and even potentially into 2025. How long do they have to keep rates where they are to start feeling the bite to make it so that, you know, it actually has the transmission mechanism that it was intended? Yeah, there's a couple really important points about that. One is remember how Chair Powell describes the path for rates. It's how fast you raise them, what level you go to, and then how long you keep them there. Uh, We're really at that third stage. How long do they keep them there? And in some sense, it doesn't matter if they raise them an extra quarter point or a half point or they keep them unchanged. They can compensate by keeping the policy rate there for a longer time. And that's now the strategy of of monetary policy. And the longer they keep rates on that plateau, the more effects of the prior increases in rates we're going to see on the economy. So that's the big message to hammer home to investors. They got that the funds rates may go up another quarter point. That's not the important point. The important point is it's not going to be cut nearly as quickly as you might think right now next year. They're keeping rates at a plateau. They're waiting for the lags of the effects of monetary policy to play through. If they're patient and see those lags, they don't have to add incremental restraint because they've got the restraint in the pipeline already. Just quickly here, do you think that Fed Chair Powell is going to say anything substantive this week? I think he can tack a little dovish. He doesn't have to talk about pain like he did last year. Uh, He just has to be a little more neutral than he came across at his last press conference. He's got markets about where he wants. The main message he's going to want to send is rates are going to be around around current levels for for a lot longer than you think. And that seems to be what people are adapting to right now. And the implications for longer term seem to be uh, really kind of giving everyone some angst in terms of what yield is the appropriate yield for the rest of the risk markets. Vincent Reinhardt, thank you so much for your insights. Let's talk retail. Chuck Grom joins us now, senior retail analyst over at Gorgon Haskett. Chuck, you named it. You came right. out with that phrase in the last couple of months on this program. You said discretionary recession. Are you seeing yep. signs of that from the earnings we've seen this morning? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, generally speaking, almost everybody's mm. copying negative. Um, and I think, you know, you can go back to last week's Target report and you look at the big bellwethers between Walmart and Target. And, you know, Walmart, who sells a lot more food, business was really strong. And Target, whose business is more discretionary in nature, continues to be really soft. But I think, uh, as you guys know, the market's forward-looking. And I think we're starting to see some signs of stabilization in discretionary as service spending, we think, is starting to plateau. 
Uh, we're seeing some signs in home furnishings that that certain parts of the business are starting to stabilize. We heard from TJ and Ross last week, Wayfair earlier in August. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, but there's a lot of mixed data, data points out there today. Let's talk about some of the specifics that have come out. Macy's in particular uh, evidently first saw a bit of a pop as they reaffirmed guidance. And then uh, now shares are lower as they're looking at markdowns being insufficient to clear inventory. Is there any larger story to tell here about price tolerance, about the middle tier retailers and how tough it is for them to really move their materials? Well, um, no, I mean, I think the the bottom line for for Macy's is that you know some some parts of their banners were really good, and I think generally speaking, inventory levels across retail continue to be really healthy. But there's there's definitely weakness across certain parts of retail. Uh, there's no really size fits all right now. Uh, we continue to watch the trend, um, and you know we'll we'll see how some of the data points come out. Like you had a company like Lowe's. Whose numbers are actually a lot better than expected today. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect to see that with, with rates moving higher, but their business continues to be really healthy. Yeah, well, people are renovating their homes rather than moving out because they want to keep their mortgage rates at you know three percent or whatever. I do want to talk about Dick's Sporting Goods shares yep. plunging after they missed their forecast. Talking about theft as one of the biggest reasons. How much more have we heard about theft among all the retailers, particularly over the past two years? It is an issue that is not getting any better. And, and the problem is retailers can't price to it right away. And that's where the margin surprise comes from. Everybody's talking about it. Target's talked about it. Home Depot has cited it and even Dick's. But but Dick's issue today wasn't necessarily because of because of theft. Their same store sales were were below plan. And really for the first time since the pandemic, uh they they kind of put up a um you know a foul ball for them. At this point, we're looking at a situation where people are expecting discretionary spending to run out. Is there an area of the market where we're seeing this? Or are we just not seeing this? And do you view some of the warnings that we've heard from Walmart CEO and Target CEOs as simply being trying to lower the bar so they have an easier time uh, crossing it later? That's a good question. One of the things that we're starting to see, and we heard it in Macy's report today and Target called about it last week, was a rise in delinquencies in their credit card businesses. And that's something we really need to keep an eye on. We have not heard that in several years, and we're starting to hear it today. Like I said, Macy's credit income was much weaker. So we're seeing some cracks in the consumer, but broadly speaking, we still are pretty upbeat. You know, when you look at real wage growth, um, you know, three consecutive months of positive real wage growth, we haven't seen that in years. Uh, we actually think back to school could be really healthy. Um, you know, the, the weather is certainly breaking across the country like you'd expect to see. Balance sheets for the consumer are in really good shape. So we're more optimistic than we were three months ago. I know we talked about that discretionary recession. Uh, it's really, really company specific right now. Chuck, you know the new blame game. There's a ready-made excuse in the oven from Target and Walmart. Lisa's talked about it a million times. Student loan repayments. Who yeah. does that affect more? It'll affect more the the targets of the world than Walmart. I mean, anybody who has a student loan tends to have, you know, a household income of seventy five thousand or above. So it's it's gonna it's gonna be an issue. I don't think it's a huge issue. Um, and I, again, we come back to real wage growth offsetting a lot of those student loan repayments. But at the end of the day, people who haven't been paying a student loan are gonna be. It's a net negative at the end of the day. When you talk about the fact that we are seeing people shift from services back to goods, which goods are getting the biggest pop from that? Is it the idea of investing in your home because you're not moving? Is it clothes? Are there areas you're looking at? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we follow Costco and Costco gives monthly comps. And so you get a really good snapshot on, on the consumer in certain parts of their business. 
we're starting to see that stabilization in consumer electronics. Uh, we're starting to see in home furnishings. And when I say stabilization, I, I mean, we're not seeing declines. You know, we're seeing sort of, you know, flat levels on unit volumes. Um, and, and we'll continue to see, like I said, the consumer has money, uh, consumer has jobs, so they're, they're willing to spend. And if we see services start to pull back, we think when, pe when people are spending more time in their home, they'll continue to invest in their home. And, that, and that's an area that, that we think could continue. And you see, again, like numbers like Home Depot last week, stabilization, Lowe's numbers today were actually pretty healthy relative to expectations. Uh, home furnishings, you're starting to see signs of it. So I think that's what the market wants to start to look for. Chuck, sounding a bit more constructive. Thank you, sir. Chuck Grom yep. there of Gordon Haskett. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. David Rubenstein, I am so happy to say, joins us now, host of that show and co-founder of Carlisle. Let's just start there. Isn't this the golden era for pensions where they can actually get the returns that they need to get to meet their obligations? Well, clearly, uh, fixed income returns are much better than they were a year or two or three ago. But money pension funds in the United States, state, pe state pension funds, are underfunded still. And even CalPERS, which is the largest state pension fund at $465 billion, is underfunded. Underfunded in the sense, but actuarially, it's about 20% below having full funding. Now, these pension funds are still in better shape than the U.S. government's Social Security program, which is not funded at all. That's a completely pay-as-you-go program, and that's much worse shape, relatively speaking, compared to the state pension funds. But some state pension funds are massively underfunded. Kentucky, Connecticut, Illinois are funded at maybe 40% of their overall obligation. So it's a challenge, and the fixed income rates that are now higher than they were before are a plus for those funds for sure, but there are many state pension funds that are still massively underfunded. And this is a reason why there had been a concern in a low-rate environment of how much some of these funds would have to lever up to get the returns that they needed to become funded. At this point, do you feel like the risk-taking uh, appetite, I should say, among some of these funds is diminished or has grown as they see the opportunity to actually meet those obligations without asking for additional contributions from members? Well, I think a lot of the state pension funds are pleased that the fixed income element of their portfolio is now 
now going to perform much better. So if you can get 5% yields on treasuries, you're, you're getting very close to what you need to do, which is a 6.8% in CalPERS case. But most of the state pension funds are designed for actuarial purposes to yield about 6 to 7% or so a year. Some of them are able to do it and some are not. But I would say the easy money is probably behind them, which is to say the high-tech world, which showed some really great uh, equity returns in recent years, that's probably behind most of the state pension funds now. They're really going to have to do the hard work of, of getting this without the high rates of return that you often got in venture capital or other kinds of uh, private investments. Money never feels easy, David. Come on. At what point has it ever been easy money at a certain time uh, when people are looking forward? How much are they looking to private equity to sort of give that same kind of feeling going forward? Well, private equity has performed pretty well over the last 10, 20, and 30 years or so for uh, large public pension funds. And those that have done very well are the ones that are, have done enormous amounts of private equity. For example, the best-funded state pension fund in the United States is probably the state of Washington. The state of Washington is overfunded by more than 100%. Uh, it has about 120% or so of what it needs. And, the, and they have used a lot of private equity to get there. So those that were participating in private equity from the 1980s, 90s, and on have actually done pretty well. Some have lagged behind. I think the biggest issue you have now is that you have expectations are very high among employees about what their retirement benefits are going to be. And we have to make certain that we can actually uh, achieve those retirement benefits. It's very easy for state legislatures to say, we're going to give you certain benefits, but it's actually not as easy to earn those benefits. And therefore, you either have to increase the taxation on everybody in the state, or you have to which means the state contribution to the pension funds is greater, or you have to increase the tax in effect that the, the pensioners or future pensioners are paying. And that's the only way you deal with it. You can, you can sometimes get a higher rate of return, but there's no easy way. You either pay people, you either tax people higher, or you have to have higher rates of return. It's no easy way to get to the uh, desired uh, uh, results. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Social Security system we have in this country is a pay-as-you-go system. So when I pay my Social Security out of my, my salary every, every week or so, uh, that's going to fund benefits right away. We don't have a system like Canada or, or Australia or most countries where you have a funded uh, national pension system. We're, we're never going to be able to afford that, uh, unfortunately, because we, we have uh, pr promised benefits that are so high that we're just not going to be able to uh, achieve the kind of uh, system we have in Canada where they fully funded or not almost fully funded uh, the pension benefits that they promised their their workers. Not to diverge too much from from the point, but isn't this part of the reason why yields have risen as much as they have on treasuries, particularly on the long end, as people take a look at that fiscal situation and don't really see an answer for how it's going to come more into balance? Well, yields have gone up because interest rates have gone up and that's made it easier for people who are fixed income um, investors to, to get a higher rate of return, and that will probably continue for some time. But I do think that it's an issue that all of us have to deal with because we have a, a uh, demographic issue in the United States. People are living longer than they were before. For example, when the Social Security system was set up in roughly 1934 or so, the average uh, American lived to about 65 years old. And so you were able to collect your Social Security at 65. So there wasn't a big gap because most people weren't living too much longer than they were, than they were going to be, able to be eligible to get their pension benefit from Social Security. Now, if the average uh, age is, let's say, 81, 82, 83, um, you've got a big gap there because people are retiring, let's say, and collecting their Social Security at 65 or 67 or 70, but they're living much longer. 
And in addition, we've taken the Social Security system and used it for so many other purposes. So uh, we have a big gap. And in the end, uh, you know, the only way to solve that problem is increasing taxes on Social Security, which is hard to do politically, or you have to reduce benefits, which is even harder to do. So there's no easy way out of that problem. And it's something that we're going to hear about uh, politicians speaking gingerly about, certainly in an election season. Going back to this question around how some of the pension plans that do have to be funded are handling this, do you expect them to lean more into alternatives at a time where some people are questioning whether the golden era is over, whether we've already seen, particularly with the IPO market in stasis and the sense of takeouts not really happening to the same degree, that it's going to be more humdrum rather than the explosive returns and growth that we've seen over the past few decades? Well, the, the, the market is more saturated than it was 20 or 30 years ago, there's no doubt. The returns will be higher to achieve, harder to achieve, but there's no doubt that Alternative investments, which may mean, I'd say, distressed real estate, distressed debt, um, buyouts, growth capital, venture capital, uh, those things tend to outperform public equities by a fair bit. And as long as people need to get higher yields, you're going to see a fair amount of money going into these so-called alternatives. Will they outperform by the same amount that they did 10 or 20 years ago? Maybe not, but it will outperform. There's no doubt about it, in my view. There's going to be also a continued focus on ESG, et cetera, given the fact uh, that there has been quite a bit of pushback. And I know that you did speak with Nicole Musico about that. What did she have to say about that? Right. Well, ESG has become controversial in the United States. The controversy uh, over ESG does not really exist so much outside the United States. Obviously, we politicize it in the United States uh, to some extent. But I don't think ESG is going away. I think people will, not, will talk about it less Larry Fink, for example, says he doesn't use the word ESG anymore, the phrase ESG, because it's so incendiary in the minds of some. But the truth is that most investors want to have some sense that the investments they're doing are not destroying the environment or doing things that are, I'd say, uh, not appropriate. But there's no doubt that some people have fought back and there is a reaction against ESG in the United States. I don't think it's going to uh, mean that ESG is going away, but people are talking about it more gingerly, let's say. David Rubenstein, thank you so much for taking the time and for your really insightful interviews. David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.